This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today, Chapters 3 and 4, From a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. And now, Chapter 3, Knights of the Table Round. Mainly, the round table talk was monologues, narrative accounts of the adventures in which these prisoners were captured and their friends and backers killed and stripped of their steeds and armor. As a general thing... As far as I could make out, these murderous adventures were not forays undertaken to avenge injuries, nor to settle old disputes or sudden fallings out. No, as a rule, they were simply duels between strangers, duels between people who had never been introduced to each other, and between whom existed no cause of offense whatever. Many a time I'd seen a couple of boys, strangers, meet by chance, and say simultaneously, I can lick you, and go at it on the spot but I had always imagined until now that that sort of thing belonged to children only, and was a sign and mark of childhood. But here were these big boobies sticking to it, and taking pride in it, clear up into full age and beyond. Yet there was something very engaging about these great simple-hearted creatures, something attractive and lovable. There did not seem to be brains enough in the entire nursery, so to speak, to bait a fishhook with, but you didn't seem to mind that, after a little, because you soon saw that brains were not needed in a society like that, and indeed would have marred it, hindered it, spoiled its symmetry, perhaps rendered its existence impossible. There was a fine manliness observable in almost every face, and in some a certain loftiness and sweetness that rebuked your belittling criticisms and stilled them. A most noble benignity and purity reposed in the countenance of him they called Sir Galahad, and likewise in the king's also, and there was a majesty and greatness in the giant frame and high bearing of Sir Lancelot of the Lake. There was presently an incident which centred the general interest upon this Sir Lancelot. At a sign from a sort of master of ceremonies, six or eight of the prisoners rose and came forward in a body and knelt on the floor and lifted up their hands toward the ladies' gallery and begged the grace of a word with the queen. The most conspicuously situated lady in that massed flower bed of feminine show and finery inclined her head by way of assent, and then the spokesman of the prisoners delivered himself and his fellows into her hands for free pardon, ransom, captivity, or death, as she in her good pleasure might elect. And this, as he said, he was doing by command of Sir Kay the Seneschal, whose prisoners they were, he having vanquished them by his single might and prowess in sturdy conflict in the field. Surprise and astonishment flashed from face to face all over the house. The queen's gratified smile faded out at the name of Sir Kay, and she looked disappointed, and the page whispered in my ear with an accent and manner expressive of extravagant derision. "'Oh, call me pet names, dearest. Call me a marine. In twice a thousand years shall the unholy invention of man labor at odds to beget the fellow to this majestic lie. Oh, Sir Kay, forsooth!' Every eye was fastened with severe inquiry upon Sir Kay, 
but he was equal to the occasion. He got up and played his hand like a major, and took every trick. He said he would state the case exactly according to the facts. He would tell the simple, straightforward tale, without comment of his own. And then, said he, if ye find glory and honor due, ye will give it unto him who is the mightiest man of his hands that ever bear shield or strake with sword in the ranks of Christian battle, even him that sitteth there. And he pointed to Sir Lancelot. Ah, he fetched them. It was a rattling good stroke. Then he went on and told how Sir Lancelot, seeking adventures, some brief time gone by, killed seven giants at one sweep of his sword, and set a hundred and forty-two captive maidens free, and then went further, still seeking adventures, and found him, Sir Kay, fighting a desperate fight against nine foreign knights, and straightway took the battle solely into his own hands, and conquered the nine. And that night Sir Lancelot rose quietly, and dressed him in Sir Kay's armor, and took Sir Kay's horse, and got him away into distant lands, and vanquished sixteen knights in one pitched battle, and thirty-four in another. And all these, and the former nine, he made to swear that about Whitsuntide they would ride to Arthur's court, and yield them to Queen Guinevere's hands, as captives of Sir Kay the Seneschal, spoil of his knightly prowess. And now here were these half-dozen, and the rest would be along as soon as they might be healed of their desperate wounds. Well, it was touching to see the queen blush and smile, and look embarrassed and happy, and fling furtive glances at Sir Lancelot that would have got him shot in Arkansas, to a dead certainty. Everybody praised the valor and magnanimity of Sir Lancelot, and as for me, I was perfectly amazed that one man, all by himself, should have been able to beat down and capture such battalions of practiced fighters. I said as much to Clarence, but this mocking featherhead only said, "'And Sir Kay had had time to get another skin of sour wine into him. "'Ye had seen the accomp doubled.' "'I looked at the boy in sorrow, "'and as I looked I saw the cloud of deep despondency settle upon his countenance. "'I followed the direction of his eye, "'and saw that a very old and white-bearded man, "'clothed in a flowing black gown, "'had risen and was standing at the table upon unsteady legs, "'and feebly swaying his ancient head "'and surveying the company with his watery and wandering eye.' The same suffering look that was in the page's face was observable in all the faces around. The look of dumb creatures who know that they must endure and make not a sound. Mary, we shall have it again, sighed the boy. That same old weary tale that he hath told a thousand times in the same words, and that he will tell till he dieth, every time he hath gotten his barrel full and feeleth his exaggeration mill a-working. Would God I had died or saw this day! "'Who is that?' "'Merlin, the mighty liar and magician. "'Perdition singe him for the weariness he worketh with his one tail. "'But that men fear him, for that he hath the storms and the lightnings "'and all the devils that be in hell at his beck and call. "'They would have dug his entrails out these many years ago "'to get at that tail and squelch it. "'He telleth it always in the third person, "'making believe he is too modest to glorify himself. "'Maledictions light upon him. "'Misfortune be his dole.' "'Good friend, prithee call me for evensong.' "'The boy nestled himself upon my shoulder "'and pretended to go to sleep. "'The old man began his tale, "'and presently the lad was asleep in reality. "'So also were the dogs, and the court, "'the lackeys, and the files of men-at-arms. "'The droning voice droned on. "'A soft snoring arose on all sides "'and supported it like a deep and subdued "'accompaniment of wind instruments.' Some heads were bowed upon folded arms. 
Some lay back with open mouths that issued unconscious music. The flies buzzed and bit, unmolested. The rats swarmed softly out from a hundred holes, and pattered about, and made themselves at home everywhere. And one of them sat up like a squirrel on the king's head, and held a bit of cheese in its hands and nibbled it, and dribbled the crumbs in the king's face with naive and impudent irreverence. It was a tranquil scene, and restful to the weary eye and the jaded spirit. This was old Merlin's tale. He said, Right so the king and Merlin departed, and went until an hermit that was a good man and a great leech. So the hermit searched all his wounds and gave him good salves, so the king was there three days, and then were his wounds well amended that he might ride and go, and so departed. And as they rode, Arthur said, I have no sword. No force, said Merlin. Hereby is a sword that shall be yours, and I may. So they rode till they came to a lake, the which was a fair water and broad, and in the midst of the lake Arthur was ware of an arm clothed in white samite that held a fair sword in that hand. Lo, said Merlin, yonder is that sword that I spake of. With that they saw a damsel going upon the lake. What damsel is that? said Arthur. That is the lady of the lake, said Merlin, and within that lake is a rock, and therein as as fair a place as any on earth, and richly be seen, and this damsel will come to you anon, and then speak ye fair to her that she will give you that sword. Anon withal came the damsel unto Arthur, and saluted him, and he her again. Damsel, said Arthur, what sword is that, that yonder the arm holdeth above the water? I would it were mine, for I have no sword. Sir Arthur King, said the damsel, that sword is mine, and if you give me a gift when I ask it you, ye shall have it. By my faith, said Arthur, I will give you what gift ye will ask. Well, said the damsel, go you into yonder barge, and row yourself to the sword, and take it and the scabbard with you, and I will ask my gift when I see my time. So Sir Arthur and Merlin alight, and tied their horses to two trays, and so they went into the ship, and when they came to the sword that the hand held, Sir Arthur took it up by the handles, and took it with him. And the arm and the hand went under the water, and so they came unto the land and rode forth. And then Sir Arthur saw a rich pavilion. What signifieth the under pavilion? It is the knight's pavilion, said Merlin, that ye fought with last. Sir Pellinore, but he is out, he is not there. He hath to do with a knight of yours, that knight Eglam, and they have fought together. But at the last Eglam fled, and else he had been dead, and he hath chased even to Carlion, and we shall meet with him anon in the highway. That is well said, said Arthur. Now have I a sword, now will I wage battle with him, and be avenged on him. Sir, ye shall not so, said Merlin, for the knight is weary of fighting and chasing, so that ye shall have no worship to have ado with him. Also, he will not lightly be matched of one knight living, and therefore it is my counsel, let him pass, for he shall do you good service in short time, and his sons, after his days. Also ye shall see that day in short space, ye shall be right glad to give him your sister to wed. When I see him, I will do as ye advise me, said Arthur. Then Sir Arthur looked on the sword, and liked it passing well. Whether liketh you better, said Merlin, the sword, or the scabbard? Me liketh better the sword, said Arthur. Ye are more unwise, said Merlin, for the scabbard is worth ten of the sword. 
"'for while ye have the scabbard upon you, "'ye shall never lose no blood. "'Be ye never so sore wounded. "'Therefore keep well the scabbard always with you.' "'So they rode into Carlion, "'and by the way they met Sir Pellinore. "'But Merlin had done such a craft "'that Pellinore saw not Arthur, "'and he passed by without any words. "'I marvel,' said Arthur, "'that the knight would not speak.' "'Sir,' said Merlin, "'he saw you not, "'for and had he seen you, "'ye had not likely departed. "'So they came unto Carlion, "'whereof his knights were passing glad, "'and when they heard of his adventures, "'they marveled that he would put himself in jeopardy. "'But all men of worship "'said it was merry to be under such a chieftain "'that would put his person in adventure "'as other poor knights did. "'We'll return with Chapter 4 "'right after these sponsor messages.' And now Chapter 4 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 4. Sir Dinadan the Humorist It seemed to me that this quaint lie was most simply and beautifully told, but then I had heard it only once, and that makes a difference. It was pleasant to the others when it was fresh, no doubt. Sir Dinadan the Humorist was the first to awake, and he soon roused the rest with a practical joke of a sufficiently poor quality. He tied some metal mugs to a dog's tail and turned him loose, and he tore around and around the place in a frenzy of fright, with all the other dogs bellowing after him and battering and crashing against everything that came in their way, and making altogether a chaos of confusion and a most deafening din and turmoil, at which every man and woman of the multitude laughed till the tears flowed, and some fell out of their chairs and wallowed on the floor in ecstasy. It was just like so many children— Sir Dinadan was so proud of his exploit that he could not keep from telling it over and over again. To weariness, how the immortal idea happened to occur to him. And as is the way with humorists of his breed, he was still laughing at it after everybody else had got through. He was so set up that he concluded to make a speech. Of course, a humorous speech. I think I never heard so many old, played-out jokes strung together in my life. He was worse than the minstrels, worse than the clown in the circus. It seemed peculiarly sad to sit here, thirteen hundred years before I was born, and listen again to poor, flat, worm-eaten jokes that had given me the dry gripes when I was a boy thirteen hundred years afterwards. It about convinced me that there isn't any such thing as a new joke possible. Everybody laughed at these antiquities, but then they always do. I had noticed that centuries later. However, of course the scoffer didn't laugh. I mean the boy. No, he scoffed. There wasn't anything he wouldn't scoff at. He said the most of Sir Dinadan's jokes were rotten, and the rest were petrified. I said petrified was good, as I believed myself that the only right way to classify the majestic ages of some of those jokes was by geologic periods. But that neat idea hit the boy in a blank place, for geology hadn't been invented yet. However, I made a note of the remark, and calculated to educate the Commonwealth up to it if I pulled through. It is no use to throw a good thing away merely because the market isn't ripe yet. Now Sir Kay arose and began to fire up on his history mill with me for fuel. It was time for me to feel serious, and I did. Sir Kay told how he had encountered me in a far land of barbarians who all wore the same ridiculous garb that I did, a garb that was a work of enchantment and intended to make the wearer secure from hurt by human hands. However, he had nullified the force of the enchantment by prayer, and had killed my thirteen knights in a three hours battle, and taken me prisoner, 
sparing my life in order that so strange a curiosity as I might be exhibited to the wonder and admiration of the king and the court. He spoke of me all the time, in the blandest way, as this prodigious giant, and this horrible sky-towering monster, and this tusked-and-taloned man-devouring ogre. And everybody took in all this bosh in the naivest way, and never smiled or seemed to notice that there was any discrepancy between these watered statistics and me. He said that in trying to escape from him, I sprang into the top of a tree two hundred cubits high at a single bound, but he dislodged me with a stone the size of a cow, which, all to brast, the most of my bones, and then swore me to appear at Arthur's court for sentence. He ended by condemning me to die at noon on the 21st, and was so little concerned about it that he stopped to yawn before he named the date. I was in a dismal state by this time. Indeed, I was hardly enough in my right mind to keep the run of a dispute that sprung up as to how I had better be killed, the possibility of the killing being doubted by some because of the enchantment in my clothes. And yet it was nothing but an ordinary suit of fifteen-dollar slop shops. Still, I was sane enough to notice this detail, to wit. Many of the terms used in the most matter-of-fact way by this great assemblage of the first ladies and gentlemen in the land would have made a Comanche blush. Indelicacy is too mild a term to convey the idea. However, I had read Tom Jones and Roderick Random and other books of that kind, and knew that the highest and first ladies and gentlemen in England had remained little or no cleaner in their talk, and in the morals and conduct which such talk implies, clear up to a hundred years ago. In fact, clear into our own nineteenth century, in which century, broadly speaking, the earliest examples of the real lady and real gentleman discoverable in English history, or in European history, for that matter, may be said to have made their appearance. Suppose Sir Walter, instead of putting the conversations into the mouths of his characters, had allowed the characters to speak for themselves. We should have had talk from Rebecca and Ivanhoe and the soft lady Rowena, which would embarrass a tramp in our day. However, to the unconsciously indelicate, all things are delicate. King Arthur's people were not aware that they were indecent, and I had presence of mind enough not to mention it. They were so troubled about my enchanted clothes that they were mightily relieved, at last, when old Merlin swept the difficulty away for them with a common-sense hint. He asked them why they were so dull. Why didn't it occur to them to strip me? In half a minute I was as naked as a pair of tongs. And dear, dear, to think of it, I was the only embarrassed person there. Everybody discussed me, and did it as unconcernedly as if I'd been a cabbage. Queen Guinevere was as naively interested as the rest, and said she had never seen anybody with legs just like mine before. It was the only compliment I got, if it was a compliment. Finally I was carried off in one direction, and my perilous clothes in another. I was shoved into a dark and narrow cell in a dungeon, with some scant remnants for dinner, some moldy straw for a bed, and no end of rats for company. Thanks for joining us for chapters 3 and 4 of A Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. We always appreciate reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road, so if you have a few minutes and you're enjoying this presentation, please do stop and give us a review, especially you Apple listeners. I believe also Spotify takes reviews, so if you're, Spotify, if you're listening to Spotify and you can leave a review, they are greatly appreciated as well. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. And we'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe.
and we'll be back soon.